you will please stand with me at the reading of God's Word. We're going to cover all of Jeremiah 8, 18 through chapter 9, verse 26, but I'm not going to read all of that right now. I'm going to start in chapter 9 and verse 1. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor that and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and test them for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow and it speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Now pick up in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. You may be seated. Jeremiah was a prophet to God's people in the 6th century B.C. He's writing to a people who are right on the edge of death. You could think of 
the prophet Jeremiah as kind of having the opposite ministry of the prophet Moses. Moses writes the book of Exodus where God comes and hears the cries of his people and he saves them from slavery and he saves them to worship himself and be with him. But then Moses gives them laws to live by. How it is his people are to be set apart to God. And Jeremiah comes and says, you haven't lived by God's laws. And so God is coming to force you out of His presence because of your sin against Him. The book of Jeremiah, which we're not going to go through the, the whole book, I'll tell you, he's, he's telling God's people two things. The enemies are going to come into your homes and take you away. And secondly, when they do this, it's going to happen. When they do this, turn back to the Lord. So what we have before us this morning is a passage that is a a really good taste for the, the most tense time for the most special people in all the world. What we're seeing is, as this tragedy falls upon God's people, is we are getting a glimpse of what is most important for actually everyone in the world, and especially for everyone who professes to know God like they did. Before we dig into the passage, I want you to see the passage. I want you to see it. Look down at your Bibles. And what I want you to see are songs and speeches. You see that in your Bibles. Most of your translations have the the verses going in and out of poetry and then speeches. You see the poetry is when when the text is has space on either side, like you see in chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. But then notice, really, 8.18 through chapter 9, verse 11. Notice in chapter 9, verse 12, now we're back to paragraphs. This is where the speech begins. And it goes to poetry again and speeches again. You listen to a song differently than you listen to a speech. You're listening for truth either way, but you know that it's communicated differently depending on the form that it takes. What we have in our passage, I think this is meaningful, is we have the poetry giving us weeping. Or the songs giving us weeping. And then the speeches giving us wisdom. What we have is God giving us poetry for our hearts. And then instruction for our minds. What we're seeing is how we should feel in the poetry, and then in the speeches, what we should understand. This is, to try to make a long passage simple, this is God the poet explaining what we should cry about and also the Lord telling us 
what we should cry for. And that's the outline for the sermon. What we should cry about. And then what we should cry for. And the whole passage together, the title of the sermon is Counsel for the Inconsolable. This is God's answer to the people, to His people, who are inconsolable in their sadness. And I wonder if you've come today very familiar with sadness. And you would look for consolation and comfort and counsel. And I believe our passage will be good for you and for all of us when we face it. So, point number one, basically Jeremiah comes and he says, I'll give you something to cry about. I'll give you something to cry about. I listened to Brother Mac's sermon from a couple of weeks ago, and I appreciated how he talked about how pastors are burdened over their church. That, and it certainly resonated with me that genuine pastors are those who are really concerned with their people actually knowing the Lord and, and growing in Christ. I, I'll tell you, this is absolutely true in my experience. My great fear the, the, the troubles that come out of my heart when I'm praying. And, 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 and even if I, I just have a lull in my day, where my heart ends up going to is when people who I have before God a charge and responsibility over, they don't seem to genuinely love God. They don't seem to know the life-giving God of Scripture. Jeremiah has a pastoral heart. He is the one who wrote not only this book named after him, but also the book right after called Lamentations. And that's why he gets this reputation of being the weeping prophet. And I want you to know, especially as we're looking at the poetry, the songs in our passage that it is revealing his heart, but he is the one who speaks for God. We are seeing the very heart of God and what God feels. Look back in chapter 8 and verse 18. <clears throat> My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. And then chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters in my eyes, a fountain of tears, and I might weep day and night. Go back to chapter 8, verse 21 even. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. The, the wound of my people is my heart wounded. In other words... Jeremiah is telling us what wounds him is God's people being wounded. It's them facing real harm. Not the harm they're thinking about. Not the things that are making them sad. But what makes him sad is their reality of what's going on that he cannot, that they can't see. And he's here to tell them. I'll give you something to cry about. He says, and then he lists three things. This is what should make the people of God most sad. And nothing in the world should rise to the level of sadness of these three things. It's what Jeremiah goes through and he says, 
desertion, deception, and death. This is what the weeping prophet weeps over. First of all, God deserting or abandoning His people. Did you hear that? Look back in chapter 8, verse 19. We didn't read this part, but listen. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and the breadth of the land. All the people are saying, what are they saying? Is the Lord not in Zion? Can we not even find Him here in Jerusalem? Is He not with us? Is her king not in her? Then chapter 8, verse 22. Is there no physician here? Is there no one here, even among God's very people, who can heal them? What is it that makes the weeping prophet weep? Look in chapter 9 and verse 11. God says, I will make Jerusalem, my people, a heap of ruins. I'm going to wipe them all out. And the only ones who are going to live there are the jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation and no one will live with me. There will be no one who lives with me. This is what makes Jeremiah cry. It is should be the thought that makes you most devastated. Chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord is promising here, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. They will not be satisfied and then they will not be sustained. Verse 16, I will scatter them from me to people they've never known. They will be terrified and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. The Lord promises to do that and He always keeps His promises. This is what makes the weeping prophet weep. Verse 19 of chapter 9. A sound of wailing is heard from Zion. We are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land. Because they came in and destroyed our houses. The enemy is coming and there will be a wail that rises up. Why? Because God's people will not be with God anymore. He will leave them and cast them out. There was a quote, I think this week, from a guy I follow. And he said, God is holy. And what that means is He can never sin against you. He has no sin. He cannot sin. That means He has never sinned against you. He's never done you wrong, ever. He is the most trustworthy person in existence. So, if He abandons you, what should that make us feel? Lamentations chapter 5, we heard it earlier. This is what Jeremiah says there. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. That God's city is empty of God's people. That He lives there without Anyone. I'll give you something to cry about. That would be God leaving His people. And He did in Jerusalem. 
the Babylonians come in and they take them away from their home with God. I'll give you something to cry about, he says. Secondly, it's their own deception. Not just his desertion of them, but their deception. Look in chapter 9 and verse 3. Notice how comprehensive this language is about the people of God. They bend their tongue like a bow. It is falsehood that grows strong in their land. It's not truth. Verse 4, everyone should not trust their neighbor. They should not put their trust in a single brother. Every brother is a deceiver. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves in committing sin. We. For this tragedy that our God is truth. And yet, in this point in history, he has a family in which every member is a liar. Those verses, I think, are pointing us back to Jacob. That heel grabber, that striver, the one who cheated his brother out of his inheritance. And what What he's saying is Jacob was not just a good name for that man. It was prophetic of the whole people. Now, every single brother does to one another what Jacob did to Esau. That is something to cry about. Or imagine belonging to a church where every Sunday all you want is to retreat from the world. And all the lies you hear, and all the deception, and the betrayal, and the sin, to retreat even from your own sin, to find some truth, to find some hope even for the guilty, and you belong to a church where none of that is there, where everyone is a liar, and everyone cheats. I'll give you something to cry about. The weeping prophet says, and it's the third thing, it is for their death. Their desertion, his desertion of them, their deception and their death. Look in chapter 9, in verse 17, where the Lord says, call the mourning women to come. Call the skillful women to come. Back in that day, they had women who would come and their job was to help people cry. They would, they would recognize how sad something was and really play it up dramatically to make others feel what they should feel. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears. Why are they crying? They're ruined in verse 19. And specifically... Verse 21, death has come up into our windows. It's like a thief breaking into a house. Death has come and taken our children and our young men, our beloved and our protectors. And now the dead bodies, verse 22, are like dung on the open field. 
They're just scattered and littered everywhere. Jeremiah is commanding in verse 17 to bring about someone who will help us to feel the sadness of this. He's telling you and me what should make us wail. What should make us most emotional, negatively, what should be our greatest nightmare would be if God deserted His own people, if God's people, I'm not talking about the other people in the world, but God's people were surrounded by lies and actually became liars, that the corpses of God's people would cover the ground. Where everywhere you step, there's another professing Christian who's lost. There's another professing Christian who will be separated from God forever in hell. Corpse after corpse of the guilty and the hopeless. I watched a movie decades ago where there was this family in the movie who saw Windex as a cure-all. So someone in the family has pimples and they spray Windex on it. Someone gets a cough, they start you know, hitting them in the face with Windex. It was just funny at the time until I realized I live in that family. Um, but it's chapstick in my household. I don't get it. You got a runny nose? Have you tried putting chapstick on your nose? No, I didn't. You got a bruise? Put a little bit of that chapstick on there. Back in chapter 8, verse 22, Jeremiah says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Balm in Gilead was this famous cure-all. It's like thieves, okay? It, it, it can cure anything. And he says, is there none of it anywhere? Can anything heal us? This faithful one, the faithful looking for a balm that would really solve all of these problems, the desertion of God's people, the deception of God's people, and the death of God's people. He's looking for balm, and all he gets is a bunch of baloney, a bunch of Windex. These people are inconsolable. But there are people who come to them in chapter 8 and verse 11 who say, they heal the wound of my people lightly. Just spray something on there. Just put something superficial on there. And what they're doing is they say, peace, peace. You're fine with God. He's not going to come and hurt you. When there is no peace, And then again in chapter 9, verse 8, all the people then start saying that to themselves. They're saying peace to one another, but they've got ambush in their hearts toward them. There is no peace, which means anyone who is desperately sad about the right things will have all kinds of counselors around them. And you can't listen to all of them. You will not get the consolation and the comfort that you want to have just because people around there are saying, don't worry about it. 
You're not that bad. Everything's going to be fine. Don't listen to the people who are opening the truth to you. Everything's fine. That's not what Jeremiah is looking for. He's looking for real comfort. And who can comfort you if it's God who is against you? One of the things we we did as we were gone in Colorado is we got some time uh, with Kelly's family. It gave me a new understanding of that kind of classic, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, when you're around people and you're upset about something and they say, well, I'll give you something to cry about. Have you ever heard of the starving kids in Ethiopia? Or they'll do something like this, just to minimize what you're feeling. Or they'll say, oh, you think things are hard for you. Well, I used to have to walk to it from school, miles in the snow, this kind of thing. Well, we heard one of these very stories when we were there. Kelly's trying to get as much memory out of her grandfather. And he tells the story about how when he was in high school, he had to walk three miles to school, three miles from school in Colorado, in the snow. And he did this for months. And when we asked why, he said, because I took my mom's car, and one day when I was driving it home, I drove it so fast that I popped a wheelie, and she was standing right there and watched me, and so she punished me. In other words, I'll give you something to cry about. This is really hard, and it was all my fault. It was all my fault. Jeremiah has given us three things to cry about. And now he's going to give us, in the speeches, two explanations for why those sad circumstances happen. And it's all their fault. Number one, they, they, forsake, they forsook his voice. Chapter 9, verse 12. Look how Jeremiah says, who can understand this? Lord, you're going to have to explain this to me. And then verse 13, the Lord speaks and he says, the reason all of this happens, the reason I'm deserting my people, the reason they are surrounded by deception, the reason they're all going to die is because they forsook my law that I put before them. They would not listen to it. But then the second reason he goes on to give is they followed their own hearts to false gods. Chapter 9 verse 14, after he says they they have forsaken my law, I said before them, they did not obey my voice, they did not walk in accord with what I said, he says, but instead they stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals, the false gods, as their fathers taught them to do. Parents, you know, your children are learning your idols. They're learning who you really trust in. They're learning who, they can tell What's really important to us? What is it that makes not just the weeping prophet weep, but the slow to anger God angry? He interrupted them back in chapter 8. Look back there. 
when they were crying out in chapter 8, verse 19, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? He hears them say, where is our God? Why won't they, why won't he come and save us? He interrupts. Notice there's a new quote at the end of that verse and then it ends. He just interrupts this with a short speech. Why have you provoked me to anger with your foreign idols? That's what makes him angry. Chapter 9, verse 2. It's that they are all adulterers. They're all unfaithful to him. They're all treacherous and have been traitors before him. Oh, beloved, when you're looking for something to cry about, cry about this, that in our heart is sin that wants to lead us to another God. And it will lead us to desertion, deception, and death. This is a message. Some of the guys who I appreciate prayed earlier. I appreciate that so much. They gather at eight. Boy, they gather at eight to pray for us. So grateful. And they read the passage and they kind of joked how dark this passage is. It is. And it's a good passage for everyone who professes to know God, and yet you don't really want to be with Him. You profess to know Him, but you resist being around Him. You profess to know Him, but your Bible stays shut almost all the time. And you're thinking of other things when you're hearing preaching. You forsake His Word. You profess to know Him. This is a great and important passage for all of us who say we know Him for any of those times that we're not really pursuing life in Him. What Jeremiah ultimately says is, you know what that is? You don't know God. You don't know the One that you say you know. He makes that plain. Chapter 9, verse 3. They proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me. Verse 6, they heap oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit. It's not just that they don't know the Lord. They refuse to know the Lord. And so we all need to hear this word that God deserts and abandons the people who Take His name on themselves and yet don't genuinely have interest in Him. Who ignore His Word and therefore He surrounds them by lies. Who look to other things except for Him to give them satisfaction and strength and so He takes away all their satisfaction and all their strength into death. I'll give you something to cry about. That should be the most primary thing for us That destiny we want to all avoid, but He doesn't just give us something to cry about. He next gives us something to cry for. The whole passage is moving toward these last four verses that we read. Where God actually summarizes the problem and He gives us a hint at the solution. Something to cry for. Cry out to Him for. Here's the problem. 
number one in verses 23 and 24. Their boast is wrong. Their pride is wrong. Over the last couple of weeks, one of my children came to me and said, you know, I notice that every night you say to your daughters, you're my, and then we answer delight. But when you go into the boys' room, you say, you're my, and they say pride and joy. Why are they your pride and joy and we're your delight? And I, I tried to answer this as well as I could. And I just explained that there, there's, a, there's a difference in the way that a father loves his daughters and the, and, and the way that a father loves his sons. Um, it, it, it's a delight. My daughters delight me in this special way because I know I have this unique role in their life to protect them and to provide for them, even differently than the boys. And so the boys, they're, they're, they're my pride and joy in, in, in the sense that I've got this different role in their life. I'm trying to, to pass something on to them. I'm trying to train them up so that they would protect, that they would provide, that they would care for those who need them. And so I explained pride and joy as pride being something that, that you're kind of passing something on to or you're, you're giving your trust in. These are the ones who are going to kind of carry on the name and, and who are, who are hoping in, in a kind of a unique way. And they have pride. Verse 23 says, the people of God have pride. They're proud about something. And that means they're trusting in something. That's what boast in means. It means we're trusting in. It means we're, we're putting our hopes in wisdom. Our ability to figure out how to make our life the way we want our life to be. They're hoping in might. We're stronger than the others. We can ultimately overpower them. They're hoping in riches. We can buy our way out of it. And Jeremiah is saying that's nothing to be proud of. Because you did not develop any of those things. You did not make yourself wise. You did not make yourself mighty. You did not make yourself rich if you were any of those things. God gives you all of those things. And look at who He is. Verse 24. You should boast if you're going to boast only in this, that you understand Me. That you know Me. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. Don't you know, if you take pride in yourself, don't you know that these verses that describe God's people and all their treachery and all their selfishness and all their delusion, that that describes you as well and me. God is the one who practices steadfast love. He practices justice. He's bringing justice to them by punishing them. And He practices righteousness. That's the one we should boast in and trust in. We can trust the Lord because these things are not just true about Him. He delights in those things. Steadfast love. When we don't know anyone who loves like Justice. People treat us wrong. Righteousness. They can't do what is good. And what we should want most of all is to know the one who that's true of. 
and they don't know him. You should boast in this if you're going to boast that you know me. We've heard twice that they don't know him. They have no reason to boast. They refuse. And you should feel what Jeremiah feels about those who profess God who do not actually show that they know Him. It should really concern you. Their boast is wrong. But secondly, their circumcision is superficial. Look in verses 25 and 26. Look at all the names listed there. You, you might say this is a motley crew. You, you might imagine that what God has laid out before us is the lineup of the usual suspects. All the bad guys are listed there. You've got Egypt, the prototypical enemy of God's people. You've got Edom, Ammon. But do you see who's also in the lineup? Judah. Circumcision is the mark, a physical mark, that God's people took on, that only God's people have, that showed physically, I have been cut off from the world, and I am cut off to God. I'm separated to Him. Circumcision was what the people of God had that the rest of the nations did not have. It was like a, a secret handshake. Do I really know that you're true or that you know God? They had circumcision, and that's what's listed there in verses 25 and 26. Well, we're not surprised in verses 25 and 26 to see all these people who are listed are uncircumcised, period. They don't know God. They've never devoted themselves to God. And then what's shocking is at the end of verse 26, it says, all the house of my people are circumcised, but they are not circumcised in their hearts. It's all superficial. It's all surface. They don't really know me. And so he's saying, beware of just being superficial in your devotion to God. Superficial. I will, I will obey him and honor him to this point, but not when it really counts. And that's the way Jeremiah's people were. We don't need surface devotion. We don't need to just say we know God, but really be trusting in ourselves. We need, you could think about the parent who's choosing between rabbis to circumcise their child. You need the right one. You need the one who does invasive incisions. This is not the time to do the one, to have the one who will be superficial, who will not cut deep. We need invasive. We need invasion. We need God Himself. Beloved, this is what Jeremiah is putting before you and me this morning. You and I would be no different than them. 
They had God's word and they didn't know him. And that can be possible for us. We would be no better. We would not have done any better than Adam did. He had God's presence and he didn't trust him. You would not have done differently. How is it that we can boast in knowing a God if he's already said we refuse to know him? How can he command us to boast in knowing him? Because he's already explained to us. The only way you will know him is if he makes himself known to us. If he invades. If he doesn't come because of us. If he doesn't respond to our goodness because we don't have any. But he overcomes it all and makes himself known. And here is the sermon in a sentence finally. Our deepest sorrow has only one consolation. And that is that the Lord makes Himself known. Our deepest sorrow, Jeremiah is telling us, to feel what must be felt. There's only one consolation and that the Lord makes Himself known. What I want all of us to be reminded, and the benefit I hope from the study I had in the book of Jeremiah over the last couple of weeks is to understand it's really important we don't cry about the wrong things. We're all tempted to cry about the wrong things and to neglect and not care about the things that really matter. It's imperative that you know what to cry about. It is just as imperative to know what to cry for. To what to ask for. Left all to me, crying circumstances. You will leave me, God. I will live in lies. And then I'll die apart from you. You have to make yourself known to me. You need to cut away my sinful and selfish heart. You need to take away from me my heart that doesn't believe you or trust you. You need to do it. You need to cut away me from the world and cut away me to you. It's imperative that we know what to cry about. It's imperative that we know what to cry for. It is just as imperative to know who to cry to. And beloved... The Bible doesn't end in Jeremiah. The New Testament begins with these words. No one has ever known God, but Jesus Christ has made him known. And it continues in John 17. This is life. That we might know God. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, who he sent. And it goes on to say more about this Jesus Christ. Whenever Peter in Acts chapter 2 is first preaching the risen Lord Jesus, he says, God has made him Lord and Christ, the one you crucified on a cross. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Beloved, what I'm saying to you 
is what Jeremiah says must happen that they cannot do. What Jeremiah says is the only consolation for the inconsolable God has done in Jesus Christ. What this means for you and me is whenever you feel distant from the Lord, disinterested in His Word, disobedient to Him, trusting in lesser things, you need to change. And you need to be very urgent that you need to change. And you will not change. But Jesus Christ can make you change by making Himself known to you. And so what you should do is cry out to Him. And He will answer. They don't know Me. My Son makes Me know. They need to be cut to the heart and Jesus cuts them to the heart. The only consolation for the weeping sinner is Jesus Christ and His consolation is enough. Beloved, let me leave you with this. Boast in knowing Christ. God does not want superficial when it comes to your relationship with Him. He wants to be known by you really and deeply. And so He sent His Son. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he quotes our passage. He says, the world did not come to know God through wisdom. And it's not the mighty who God calls. Wisdom, might, riches. And then he goes on to say, consider your calling. You were not Wise according to worldly standards. You were not powerful. That's not why you know God if you know God. He chooses the things that are not. So that no man may boast in His presence. And then he says this, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let the one who boasts, boast in Him. Beloved, Christ has become to us wisdom. He is the one who shows us, the only one who can show us where life is. He's become to us righteousness. All those things about them are true of us. We were not righteous. We didn't have holiness in our life. And Christ not only is crucified for our sins, His life is credited to us so that we become the righteousness of God. He is our righteousness and our sanctification. Actually, makes us more and more righteous. He is our redemption by His blood. He actually bought you and me. If you're going to boast, 
Boast that you know Him who did all this for us. And if your pride is in Him, you can count on Him to save you. Oh God, we pray that you would take this word and you would set it into our hearts and help us to worship and love the Lord Jesus. He came to comfort us in our deepest sorrow. He was abandoned on the cross. He was surrounded by liars on the cross. And he died in the place of the guilty on the cross. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. We could never have known you apart from your son. So help us to worship him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.